first letter of Peter, chapter 5, and we'll begin reading at verse 5, and reading verses one, uh, 5 to 10. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Now last time we looked at the beginning of the chapter here, which specifically refers to the eldership of the church and the way in which elders are to act as the spiritual shepherds of the church. Um, and then the promise given to them in verse 4, uh, when the chief shepherd, who is Jesus, shall himself appear, they will receive the unfading crown of glory. So there's a specific uh, emphasis there on the importance of the eldership and the importance of them carrying out their role as shepherds of the flock, of the congregations where the Lord has set them as shepherds, as spiritual shepherds. But we did mention last time as well how um, it's not simply the importance of looking at the leadership of the church, but how the whole fellowship, how the whole body of people that form the congregation or the church, uh, as they uh, relate to the eldership, uh, actually to um, see their own contribution as important, as they uh, not only relate to the eldership as those who are shepherded to those who shepherd, but also here how we are to see it as as he, as he um, expands on this uh, from verse 5 onwards. You who are younger, be subject to the elders. And then he expands on that. Clothe yourselves, all of you, which would include the elders as well, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In other words, he's really saying that the whole fellowship of people, both those who are leading the church and those who are led, are to see it as their duty, as their privilege indeed, uh, to be in submission one to another and to act in humility one to another and to humble themselves together under the mighty hand of God. And in many ways that's the key to a healthy congregation. We know that everything comes from God. We know that we need to depend upon the grace of God, upon the Spirit of God, but humility, as we'll see tonight, something of its definition, humility and humility towards one another, as he says in verse 5, is very much the key or a key topic or a key activity, a key exercise in what it is to have a healthy congregation with healthy relationships. Because when you have that mutual submission and mutual humility towards one another, then you have that basis on which uh, every congregation that has that is really in a good position in, in relation to God and to one another and to the world around them. 
So there are two things we're really going to look at from these verses 5 to 10. Um, and we'll look at them as something of uh, an imperative in each case. First of all, he's saying, be humble, look after each other. Be humble, and especially be humble in a way that looks after each other. And then from verse 8, be watchful, look out for your adversary, look out for the devil. Be watchful because your adversary is prowling around seeking to devour you, seeking people to devour. So these are the two points we're going to focus on this evening as we come towards our, uh, ending our studies in um, First Peter, probably. Maybe one more study should round it off for us, I think. Um, be humble, look after each other. Notice what he's saying here. Clothe yourselves. In verse uh, 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. And then he gives a quotation from Psalm 55, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now that's an interesting reference, isn't it? Clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. And he's emphatic that it has to be all of you. Clothe yourselves, all of you. He's not just saying clothe yourselves who are under the leadership of the church or, or to the leadership of the church. You clothe yourselves with humility. All of you, as a body of people, he's saying, as Christians together, all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. And why is that an interesting reference, an interesting way of putting it? Well, it is, for a start, a very interesting imagery. He's talking about a spiritual putting on of, of garments. And this is one of the things you find, of course, in Paul's uh, writings as well, when you go back to the likes of Colossians. And chapter 3, he speaks there, you recall, of uh, the same kind of language, the same kind of imagery of putting off clothes and putting on clothes. He says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge. That's, the, that, that's what's already happened, he says. You've now got a changed lifestyle through coming to be saved and knowing Christ. And then he says, verse, verse 12, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another and so on. He's really saying, as you do with clothes, as you put on your clothes every morning, as you divest yourself of your night clothes, he's saying, as Christians, you've already done that. Your old self has been laid down. You've put on the new self. You've put on Christ. But he says, in terms of your behavior from that, you are to put on all of these spiritual qualities or these spiritual garments. And Peter is using the same language really exactly, except he is really narrowing the focus to humility. Clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. But it's not just the imagery that he's using that's interesting and very instructive. Um, it's also something you recall that Peter would have been well used to from his experience of Jesus. Go back in your mind to John 13, to that upper room where the disciples are gathered, where Jesus is about to do something remarkable in their presence and to them, where he's going to wash their feet as something of uh, an emblem or an, 
an image or a parable, if you like, in action of his own humility. But you see, before he did that, he did something else. He put off his outer garments and he put on the towel. And in those days when people were walking from place to place and their feet would get dusty even on a short walk, it was the practice of slaves and households to take a towel, to put the towel round themselves and then wash the feet of those who had come as guests to that house and actually wash their feet um, as, as slaves. They were uh, given that task. So G uh, Peter really saw something absolutely remarkable. He didn't realize it fully at the time, of course, but he would have known it um, by the time he wrote this first letter because what Peter was actually seeing was God putting off his outer garments and putting on the garments of a slave. What he saw was Jesus Christ, the Son of God, doing something that indicated what he had actually done in a spiritual way, what he had done in, a, in, in coming into this world in the form of a servant, as Paul wrote in Philippians 2. What Jesus had done was divest himself, if you like, of these outer garments of glory that belonged to him as God. He didn't stop being God, but he came into this world and was revealed in this world and acted in this world and ministered in this world as a servant. And it's that that he indicated to the disciples really was the crux of his ministry. I am among you as one who is a servant, one who serves. Peter, of course, didn't at that stage understand fully what was happening. But he knows it now, and he remembered that. And as he remembered that, he says to these people that he's writing to you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Do as Jesus did. He set the pattern of what it is to have a healthy spiritual relationship with fellow Christians. And as Jesus set the pattern for what it is to serve God, as Jesus set the pattern of what humility is in the form of a servant, because you cannot have a definition of humility unless you actually have, at the very heart of it, a willing service for God. Humility is not just acting apart. It's a state of heart state of mind that shows itself, that expresses itself in outward actions. That's what Jesus did. That's what Peter remembered Jesus doing. His setting off, his setting apart, taking off his outer garments, literally the clothes that he was wearing and putting on the towel was a picture of what he had done as the Son of God coming into the form of a servant. Now Peter is saying, clothe yourselves all of you with humility. Humility is not comparing yourself with other people and then reaching a conclusion as to whether you are humble or not. You don't measure yourself by other people. When you think about these qualities, the Bible speaks about humility and these other qualities that we are to put on. When you begin thinking about humility at the feet of Jesus Christ as a servant. And you begin thinking about humility when you realize what he did in order to become a ministering servant 
in order to procure our salvation. What Peter is saying is to actually bring your salvation, to make your salvation sure and certain for you. The Son of God became a servant. Deity came to take the form of a servant or a slave. And he put on the garments of servanthood in a spiritual way. Well, he's saying, that's really what it is to be humble, to clothe yourselves with humility. It's not comparing ourselves with one another. It's beginning with Jesus and saying, well, that's what Jesus did for me. That's grace in action. That's what it means that God actually came to reveal His grace in Christ. It's a grace which stoops down. It's a grace which comes to actually be at the feet of His disciples, to wash their feet. It's the grace of servanthood. And that's what brings us really to begin to think properly of what humility is for us. When you begin with the humility of Jesus, you then begin to uh, understand what humility really is. Because you say to God, Lord, how can I be anything other than a humble servant? Would you became a humble servant for me. That's the logic, that's the thrust of Peter's emphasis. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. And notice he's saying with humility towards one another. It's not just all of you with humility some of the time or with humility to certain people, all of you towards one another. He's not leaving anybody out. That's the, the privilege and that's the challenge for us as individuals, as Christians, as a Christian congregation, that we are to actually act seriously and honestly in humility towards each other. The humility that's patterned on the humility of Jesus himself, the humility of service, the humility of serving one another. Remember that Paul says something very similar in a uh, quite stupendous passage in um, Philippians chapter 2 um, where as he wrote there to, to the Philippians and such a warm epistle in many ways um, he says there, Now complete my joy uh, by you being of the same mind and having the same love and being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or, or conceit but in humility, count others more significant or better than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. And then he goes on to speak about Jesus. Have this mind. It says here, among yourselves. I think the older translation is preferable. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who Though he in the form of God, that's, in other words, the fully God, he did not count that something to hold on to, to refuse to come into the form of a servant, full servanthood. Instead, he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant and being found in human form. He humbled himself by coming obedient to death, even the death of the cross. There is the example, the supreme example and action of Jesus in terms of humility and humbling himself. And we should have to say, all of us uh, tonight who are able to actually see this for ourselves in Jesus Christ, uh, to say, well, who am I that I should be proud? Who am I that I should refuse to minister 
to my fellow disciples, to my fellow Christians, to my fellow members of a congregation? Who am I that I should insist that I can't actually engage myself in that kind of service? Who am I that I should think of anything being beneath me or below me when the Son of God became a servant? That's the powerful uh, truth, the powerful imagery, the powerful action of Jesus that Peter is here alluding to when he brings up this image of clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. Humble yourselves, therefore. Humble yourselves, therefore, um, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Now again, you can just see how Peter has learned from his own experience. Because this is the man who actually said to Jesus, though all others might deny him, he would never do that. I will not do it. There is Peter, you see, in insisting, looking at himself and being confident in himself and thinking that he himself will be able to stand, that even if his fellow disciples give way, he's not going to do such a thing. Where did that lead him? It led him to that fall into denial of Jesus three times. But he was humbled by Jesus looking at him. And as Jesus looked at him, and really in many ways looked through him, as Peter realized, the Lord turned and looked upon Peter, as Luke puts it. He went out and he wept bitterly. He realized what he had done, not just in denying his Lord, but in not actually listening to what the Lord was saying about the need to watch and to pray and how the devil had sought leave to get in amongst them. He humbled himself or was humbled and repented and then was lifted in restoration by Jesus as you read in John chapter 21. And that reminds us of something very important. You cannot detach humility, as we said, from grace, from the grace of God in Christ, from the way Jesus humbled himself. Neither can you actually detach humility from repentance. You cannot detach humility from repentance. To be a humble person is to be a repentant person. It's to express to God sorrow for your sins. It's to seek the forgiveness of God in repentance. That's the turning from sin towards God with a determination to leave sin behind and to work at that daily. That's what Peter himself recalls here, that uh, they are to hum humble themselves under the mighty hand of God as he had done under the mighty hand of Jesus. As he had come in repentance because you see if we think of humility as just something that belongs on the level of our relationship one to another we can try and live a humble life we can try as best we can really to show that we do accept other people at least equal to ourselves if not actually above ourselves but humility without repentance is still essentially pride at the heart of it. Because it doesn't 
actually have anything beyond self and beyond self-ability. Humility, in this sense in which Peter is talking about it, is a humility that has come before God and realized, Lord, I am a great sinner. I ask you forgiveness. I plead with you to save me. That's humbling yourselves. That's humility. And that works itself through in your life as a Christian. When you keep coming back to this great fact that the grace of God in Christ is the pattern for our humility. And that as we come to express our sin to Him, so we come to follow Jesus in the pattern He set for us in serving God. Not that Jesus needed to repent of any sin, of course, not saying that, but in the way that He lived as a servant, answerable to the Father who sent Him into the world, remarkable as that is. That's the reality of it, and it's the reality of that grace that's behind this. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. At the proper time probably refers to the coming of Christ again, but in any case, what it's saying is that when you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, when you repent, when you come on your knees before God, when you seek to maintain that attitude and uh, that action of humility in your life when you really do genuinely want to be a humble Christian, not seeking a platform for yourself and not measuring yourself by other people, well, God will actually exalt you in due time, in His time, at the appropriate place in His diary, not when we think is the right time for Him to do it. And then He says, casting all your care or your anxiety. The word is cares or anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now there's a very important connection here that we mustn't actually miss. Because there's a very important con- the very important connection is between humble yourselves and casting all your anxieties on him. See, because that's what you're doing. When you cast all your anxieties onto God in the knowledge that he cares for you, That's humility. That's yourself saying, Lord, I can't manage my life myself. I can't manage all of these things in my life that you have brought about in your wisdom and your providence. I have so many things in my life that I know I cannot myself control and manage and use to my benefit. How am I going to actually accept the sufferings in my life, the temptations in my life, the unexpected twists and turns of my life? You say to the Lord, I have, you have arranged these for me, Lord. Please help me to cast them onto you, to roll them onto you. You see, humility, humbling yourselves, follows on into saying, casting all your anxieties on him. Because he cares for you. There are a few things more important for you and for me tonight, whatever your relationship with God is, and particularly for those of us who know Him as our Savior, there are few things more important for us to keep a hold of than that He cares for you. That's the ground on which you bring your anxieties and cast them over to Him. He is really saying He cares for you so you can do this safely. You can do this without fear of loss. 
You can do this in a way that will then have your life managed far more than if you kept these anxieties to yourself. Because when you're actually rolling over your anxieties to God in the knowledge that He cares for you, what you're doing effectively is saying, Lord, take my life and make it thine. Look after my life for me as one who cares. What is it tonight in your life that you're anxious about? What anxieties are you carrying in your heart? What is it as you think forward to tomorrow, God willing, fills your heart with some measure of fear? What is it that's giving you pain? What is it in your mind now that's giving you trouble? What are your thoughts on? What are the thoughts behind that pain in your heart? Cast it on to God. Even if you've never done that before. Even if you need to learn to do this again and again. Even if you've stood back and said, I really would, I really do want to be a Christian. I can see in the lives of other Christians what it means to them. I can see a contentment in their lives that I don't have. I can see a satisfaction about them that I would really like to have in my own life. But you're still standing back and you're still looking into your own heart and saying, well, I just don't think I can. I don't think I can do it now. I don't want to do it for the moment, but I do want to be a Christian. Cast it all upon him. Don't doubt what he's saying about himself. Don't think that he's not going to look after your life. Where are you safer than under the care of Christ? Under the care of God? Where is there a shepherding for your life? Like there is in the good shepherd who gave his life for his people. Where can you find such management? as will manage your life successfully, whatever it's going to mean in terms of experiencing pain and loss and sorrow and things you can't understand in this world and troubles and all sorts of things that really lie behind the, the grief that comes into our lives from time to time. Where can you find a management of all of these things together except as you find it in God himself? Humble yourselves, therefore, Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. If we believe that tonight, this is what we're going to be doing. Now I know what you're saying. I'm saying it to myself. I do this in my head. I do this in my thoughts. I do this from day to day. But then I find myself taking all that back and starting to worry and being anxious. Well, that's really just taking the anxieties back, isn't it, yourself? And being anxious about it as if you were the, the manager of your own life. You have to learn, and this is not something that comes overnight. That's because you come to be a Christian and come to know conversion and new birth. That doesn't mean that everything to do with this falls into place instantly. That you come to be really perfect in humility and in humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God and in casting all our anxieties onto Him. But it's something you work at. It's something you learn as you go on. It's something that you um, give a mind to uh, day by day. It's something that you pray about. It's something that 
you bring before the Lord and ask him for his help with that. But do it tonight. Do it again. Do it again and again. That's what life's about as a Christian. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That's the first thing. Then be humble. Look after each other. More briefly, secondly, be watchful. Look out for the devil. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. By that he means um, have that state of mind. It's really, I suppose in a sense, it's really Peter saying if you wanted to get the punch that he really has in these words, he's saying, stay awake. Don't fall asleep spiritually. Why? Because your adversary is prowling around. The devil is looking for someone to devour. And he devours those who slumber spiritually. That's why he's saying to them there, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith or in the faith. Now you see the description that he's giving to the devil. First of all, he calls him your adversary. And in those days, that was a term that was used in, in a legal setting. Um, there was very often the word that was used for a legal representative who, in a court of law, uh, was your opponent if he was prosecuting a, a case against you. He is your adversary. So then, same kind of legal terms used today. But of course, Peter is using it spiritually of the devil. The devil is your adversary. He stands opposed to you with a mind and a will and a purpose that wants to actually not just oppose you, but if it were at all possible, to undo what God has done. Romans chapter 8 comes to mind, doesn't it, where um, Paul is saying, who shall bring any charge against God's chosen people, against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Let's go back to the Old Testament looked at this recently in a Gaelic service to, na uh, to, to the uh, way in which Balaam in the book of Numbers was hired by the king of Moab, Balak. Why was he hired? He was hired so that he would come and curse the people of Israel who were passing through Moabite territory on the way to Canaan. Come, he said to Balaam, and curse me, this people. Balak wanted to actually destroy these people, though they were no threat to him, actually. He just had it in his heart to annihilate them to do away with them, to overcome them. So in order for his armies to be sure of victory, he hired this soothsayer, this seer, Balaam, an evil man, to curse these people. And Balaam came to acknowledge because God came and met him and God put words in his heart, words that he had to speak. He was forced to speak them, much to Balak's disquiet and annoyance. But what it essentially was is this, how can I curse those God has not cursed? And how can I bless those that God has not blessed? See, there's evil in the person of Balaam coming to acknowledge where God has blessed, they are blessed. Nothing's going to reverse that. Who shall bring any charge against them? But the devil does try. And the devil has an access to our lives in a way that uses those that are under his control, under his direction, to try and undermine your confidence in Christ, your confidence in the gospel. 
Isn't there a voice right now in your mind or has been since the service began saying something to you that is different in some way to what God is saying to you about committing all your life to Him and your anxieties being rolled out onto God, casting them onto Him? There's a voice that says you don't have to go that far. Where's that voice from? It's from the devil. From the one who wants you to lose your soul. To end up in hell to be with him there. He's your adversary. And then the word devil itself. It's a word that means slanderer. What Peter is doing, you see, is drawing the minds of those he's writing to. We've seen it all the way through the letter the sufferings they're going through, the trials that they're having to endure, the persecution that at times has broken out and uh, has come to inflict pain on them. All he's saying, remember where all of that is really from, essentially. It's under the director of evil. It's your adversary, the slanderer. That's the malign and malicious influence that opposes the gospel doesn't care what means he has access to, what means he uses to do it, but that's his intention. And as we said this morning, that there is no goodness, and that there is nothing but goodness, nothing opposite to goodness in God. There is no goodness in the devil. Not an iota of it. And Jesus well knew it when he described him as a liar and the father of lies. There is no truth in him. That's the enemy. That's the one you're facing. And he's like, he says, a roaring lion prowling around seeking someone to devour. Go back to the reading we had in Job uh, where uh, God came to ask Satan where he had come from. He said from going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it prowling around looking for a victim you see how it is with a roaring lion roaring lion here means yes there's there's intimidation there's um, that which makes you scared but the emphasis especially is on a hungry lion a lion that's roaring because it's hungry and it wants something to eat and it's out for a victim and when you look at video uh, footage of lions going about their hunting. You see them coming to maybe a herd of wildebeest and the way they go about hunting they target the youngest or the weakest and they try and actually isolate that one from the rest of the herd and they work their tactics so that eventually either he falls behind, it falls behind the rest of the herd as they run or in some way or other it becomes isolated and that's it, the lions close in and that's the end of it. Well, Satan has spiritual tactics. And that's why, again, when Paul was writing to the Ephesians, you remember in chapter 6, and telling them there that he needed to uh, actually take up the whole armor of God and how uh, that was so essential for them. Finally, he says, Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, the cunning, the strategies, the worked out plans of the devil. 
He doesn't come any more than a lion comes to a herd without having worked out what they're going to do and the strategy by which they're going to pick out their victim. Or he says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And sometimes lions are not very obvious when they're in the long grass and coming, trying to creep up close to wherever they're going to have their victim. And the devil is like that too. And one of the most effective camouflages that he uses is the idea that he doesn't really exist at all. That's just a figment of human imagination. It's just a kind of bogeyman emphasis that down through the years has taken on the characteristics of the devil. Or that in those days of the apostle they believed in such things, but now that we've moved on, and especially where we are now as human beings at this particular juncture in history, surely you don't believe literally in the devil. Well, this is either the word of God or it isn't. This is either the truth or it isn't. And if it is the truth, then you know that not only is there such a being as the devil, and that that being is entirely untruthful, but he is prowling around and he's prowling around here tonight seeking a victim seeking whom he may devour the word means swallowed up devoured so he says be watchful be sober minded be watchful resist him he says firm in your faith knowing the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And he uses brotherhood very advisedly because, again, the emphasis is he is on the unity, the togetherness that gives strength to God's people. But notice what he's saying. Resist him, firm in the faith. And what he means by that is not so much your exercise of faith, but the faith, the Christian faith the great doctrines of the faith, the foundational things of the faith, what you have in Christ, what you have in the grace of God, what you have in all that the Bible emphasizes is foundational to your salvation. Resist him steadfast, firm in that. Don't give away an inch to him in your conviction of what is true and what isn't and what God is and who God is and what is not true of the Lord. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. I was watching some video footage the other day, actually, um, of a herd of African buffalo. It wasn't a very big herd, but they were being uh, they were being watched uh, and. Uh, followed by six or seven lions. Uh, and as the video footage wound on, you could see how the herd was packing itself together because the lion was obviously looking at the calves of the herd as the, mo- as, the, as the weakest members of the herd. And it was quite wonderful seeing that whole herd of African buffalo with the big giant buffaloes, the bulls, and some of the cows on the outside, and they had put the calves in the middle of that group, or, uh, middle of the herd, 
And as the lions kept attacking from various sides, what they did was swung round. They kept swinging round so that the calves were always protected in the middle. And the only way the lion could get to them was first of all going through those that he would not be able to overcome, the big ones. And to me that was really a wonderful illustration of what we're looking at tonight. That we protect one another. And we protect especially the most vulnerable. Not just the young children and young people of the congregation, but those that are perhaps more prone to temptations that they may fall into, or to protect those who have problems facing temptation, falling into temptation. Whatever it is, here's what Peter is saying to us. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, casting all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. And be watchful. Be watchful together. Be watchful. Look out for one another. Because your adversary, the devil, is prowling around. Let's make sure that our strength is in our unity, in our being of the one mind of the same mind and in thinking of others better than ourselves. Because all of that is what lends our strength to us, from the Lord, of course. As Ephesians 4, a chapter of emphasizing so much about unity, the unity of God's people. But in the middle of it there, in the middle of that passage, there's this emphasis that you no longer uh, be driven around or driven about by every wind of doctrine, by the slight of people, of men, uh, by which they lay in wait to deceive. The devil is always active. And as he's always active, he's always seeking whom he may devour. Let's be humble and look after each other. Let's be watchful and look out for the devil so that we may go on together in the strength that the Lord gives. Let's pray. Lord our God, we thank you anew this evening for the grace uh, that has come to us in such rich abundance in Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the provision that that grace has made for us in salvation. Uh, we give thanks for the direction of your word to us as to where our safety lies. And we pray tonight, O Lord, that each of us here may know what it is uh, to cast all our anxieties onto you and to be convinced that you care for us and to act on the basis of what your truth holds before us, that we may indeed come to be willing servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, we pray, to have that protective measure against the devil that we have been thinking of this evening, to be steadfast and resisting him in the faith in the great things of your salvation. Continue with us, we pray, throughout this week. And in all of this we ask that you would bless to us your own word of truth. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, our final psalm of praise this evening is psalm number 18. Psalm 18, we're singing from verse 27. That's in the Sing Psalms version on page 21. Psalm 18 at uh, page 21. The tune this time is Duke Street. 
We're seeing verses 27 to 32. You save the humble and the meek, but bring the proud down from their height. You, Lord, will keep my lamp aflame. God turns my darkness into light. With help from God, I can advance against a troop and rout them all. And with the aid my God will give, I can leap over any wall. Verses 27 to 32 to his praise. <coughs> you save the humble side out here this evening. Now may grace and mercy and peace from God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be with you now and evermore. Amen.